Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Hi, welcome to another episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. As usual, I'm Corey Osler, and we're here with my dad, Blake Osler. And tonight we're going to be continuing our discussion of Chapter 2. First off, we're going over two different systematic theologies. And last time we talked about classical theism, or the Thomist theism, which is the classical view where basically God is a stagnant or static being that can't be moved or changed in any way by by anything, really, and, and relationships aren't exactly possible if you take this theology to its logical conclusions, which Thomas Aquinas did. Tonight we're going to actually talk about the polar opposite, which is known as process thought. Um, and I'm going to let my dad talk more about the beginnings of it, but basically process thought had its beginnings with a, a gentleman named Alfred North Whitehead in the early 20th century and arose from the thought about how God fits into the paradigm of the new scientific breakthroughs that were coming to light at that time. So go ahead and tell us a little bit more about that, if you wouldn't mind. You bet Alfred North Whitehead was at uh, Harvard. He was working, interestingly enough, with Bertrand Russell. And he was familiar with, had uh, studied the developments in quantum physics. If you recall, in quantum physics, there's no such thing as mere atomic particles. Instead, what we have is as much a wave as a particle, and which one it is depends on the way we look at it. And the quantum function describes only a probability that a, a particle is in any given place at any given time, and it depends on the observer to collapse the function to make it certain. And so Whitehead was asking himself, what kind of reality are we now dealing with? I mean, we're not dealing with a, a world of ever smaller particles until you get to a, smartest, a smallest particle of matter. We're really dealing with something that is, in essence, more of a creativity, more of a becoming than a being. And so he developed a... Go ahead. Before you go on, so bef before this, I mean, and a lot of people still probably think this way, but you'll know, like, the the people knew about atoms, or the what was perceived as the smallest building block of matter, and these atoms, at least in the scientific mind up until around this time, were thought to be about as small as it gets, and they were this enduring substance that made up everything. You know, they, they changed how they configured, and they different substances broke down, but the substance itself was pretty much ongoing. But in New scientific thought, they, you know, discovered quarks and then even beyond quarks that, like you said, everything instead of being this solid state is more of a, an energy event and, or like you said, a wave. And so that's just a very different way of thinking of things. It's more of events of energy, which is like a relationship with, I don't know, en energy is like a relationship with a relationship of a relationship or something like that with different events. Yeah, and it, it gets to the very base of, of what has been a problem since, you know, the earliest Eleatics in Greek thought, and that is, how does something remain the same while changing? Because we have this notion of identity, and how is it that I'm the same person I was when I was 10, because I'm very different, none of the matter in my body remains, my character and the content of my brain are very different. And I guess we could break it down and say my DNA is the same, but now we're learning that DNA changes. And so we're asking a very fundamental question. How does something consist of, of becoming and yet um, maintain an identity? And so Whitehead was thinking about these kinds of problems, and he came up, and, and there are two essential notions to grasp. One is creativity, and the second is that everything in the universe influences everything else in the universe with the primary influence being essentially a mind, an intelligence, which arises from the totality of the material events of becoming in the universe. And he posited God because it was necessary to complete his metaphysical system. And so the primary influence that is given universally to all events in the universe is what's known as God's initial aim. And you have all of these events that, you know, relate to one another in different ways. 
And I'm going to break this down to give a very simple picture of what he had in mind. So take, if, if you had a, a board take on it, and you just draw a dot. And that dot represents a moment of an event, a single moment. Now, there's no such thing as the single moment because the essence of reality is creativity. And the moment is going to pass from this moment to the next moment before the moment has even been defined. And so everything is always in the process of becoming. So, so what you're going to draw, you're going to draw a series of dots and draw kind of lines because dots that come after are successors of the first dot and retain something of the identity of the first dot as it passes from, from one dot to the next generation of dot to the next generation of dot. And then you draw a thousand dots all around it and draw lines going to each dot. And that's the influence of everything else, all these other events in the universe that are influencing it. Now, here's the key concept. In each moment, there is this moment of creativity. You have the, the reality of what this event is. It then takes into consideration some or all of these influences to a greater or lesser extent, and it embodies these influences. In the next moment, there's what's known as a creative synthesis. And in this creative synthesis, it creates a new moment, a new reality. The key for theology is that God can't control to what extent the events embody either his initial aim or the influences of everything else in the universe, because it is essentially the creativity of that momentary event and how much influence it will receive is kind of up to that event. And there's a kind of mental pull. I, I don't want to think in terms of consciousness, but there's a mental pull to each moment of reality where there's a decision, not at a conscious level, but there's a decision made as to what influences will be permitted and those that won't. So God can't have omnipotence. In, in Whitehead's thought, God is only, he may be the, the most influential actor in the entire universe, but he's still only one influence among many. And he can't control how the moments will embody his will and what he would have for each moment. It immediately follows that God can only act through persuasion. God cannot control what occurs. He can influence, and over large periods of time, his will will be more greatly embodied into the realities because he, he will be the primary influence that's constant. And he will be able to, therefore, lead, if you will, draw things to him or, or to the direction that he would like through his initial aim. But God can't control what's happening. And that's, that is a key for process thought. It also follows immediately two, two notions, whereas Aquinas thought of perfection as an absolute upper limit. You know, whatever the, the, the greatest concept that you have is, that's what God is. Whitehead and, and his primary student who defined these matters, Charles um, Hartshorn, thought in terms of no upper limit. God is always increasing. God is always moving forward. He's always becoming something different than he is. And so there's no absolute upper limit to how great God can be. It also follows in Aquinas' theology, God is an unmoved mover. In Hartshorn's and Whitehead's thought, God is the most moved mover. In other words, nothing influences God in Aquinas' thought. Everything influences God in the Whiteheadian, Hartshornian view of process theology. I don't know how clear that is, but I think those are the, the basic concepts. One question, just based on what you said there. So why, if God is one among many influences, what makes him special, or is he, or is this a he, I don't know, just this being God, why would anyone want to listen to him? Well, God is not a person. God is personal. In other words, God has attributes of mind. He has a will, and he can exercise power, but the nature of his power is always persuasive. God is the most persuasive reality in the universe. Okay, so that right there. So he's most persuasive in that he has... So he's, he's basically the loudest voice uh, luring these events from one moment of creativity into another. Is that... Yeah, that, that, would be a, that would be a good analogy, though um, even the loudest voice might not get included. That is kind of the key thing. I just wrote like a little summary here, which I just found on some blog. It said, the big thing in process theology is that process theologians do not look at God's power in terms of being coercive, that is, dominating others. Instead, God's power is persuasive, like you said. God uses his power in a way that brings people about willfully, brings people's wills about without forcing anyone to do anything. God is not about control. And even that's a bit, a bit misleading, and here's why. There are two different notions 
And, and I find this notion to have some pull. The question is, is God persuasive because he must be persuasive and can't be otherwise? Or is he persuasive because he believes that persuasion is morally superior? And the answer in process thought is God is not persuasive because persuasion is morally superior. He is essentially. Yeah, he's metaphysically constrained to be persuasive and cannot be coercive. Whereas a more classical Christian view among those who are in the free will tradition may be that God is persuasive out of choice. He could be coercive, but he believes that persuasion is morally superior. So he could have the power, but chooses not to. All right, so what limits God from exerting more power other than, I mean, like, why is that essential? Is that part of God or just part of the nature of the universe in process thought? No, because God doesn't create out of nothing. He doesn't create ex nihilo. The actual occasions exist, in essence, prior to God, where, you know, they're just kind of a given. Creativity is the most ultimate reality, not God. Okay. And so the creativity in each actual occasion is something God can't control. And given the fact that metaphysically it can't be controlled, it's not within God's power to control it, he couldn't choose to do so because he just doesn't have that kind of power. Okay, so what you're saying is in process, thought, the actual events or the energy events we've been talking about, those, would you say those are eternal in this thought process in some way? Or how did they, I don't know. the (laughs) The fact that there are creative events is eternal. No given creative event is eternal. Okay. Okay. So it's like saying the fact that there have always been people is eternal, but none of the same people are, are around all the time. That would be another analogy. Okay. So. All right. So, I mean, that obviously this resonates pretty well with Mormon thought in that we also don't necessarily believe God created ex nihilo. We believe the same kind of thing where he's, I guess you'd say, somewhat limited just based on the fact that there are other eternally existing things, and we'll talk about that more later, but I'm just saying the process thought in that aspect at least resonates a bit with Mormonism there. Obviously, it's a little different, but it's related. Yeah, no, there's no question that the rejection of creation ex nihilo is something the process philosophers and theologians have in common with Mormons. All right, and the other big one I'd say is this idea of God using persuasion. I think Mormons probably think of God as more limiting himself as opposed to being metaphysically needing to. But if you recall, when Joseph Smith talked about the power of the priesthood, which we equate with the power of God, he said that that's only to be on persuasion. And once you coerce, then that's the end of your power. So if that's truly the power of God, then we believe the same thing, that if God did use coercion, he would somehow cease to be God. I don't know, again, we can go into that more, but persuasion is key. Later on, we'll talk when we get to the third volume that God's power arises from and is dependent on the fact that he is in a a relationship of complete and perfect love with the other members of the Godhead. In other words, he couldn't be God if he weren't loving. The very essence of God is love. Given that, if love is by its very nature persuasive rather than coercive in every respect, then in that respect, if that's the basis of God's deity, then God, in Mormon thought, could not exercise coercive power because in doing so, he would lose his divine status. Just one way of of saying we can come up with a way of looking at Mormonism that would make it very close to process thought. All right, now I just want to kind of go into the different attributes of God that you've drawn out here according to process theism. And we'll note as we go through them, if you listen to the last podcast, that these are polar opposites to the absolutist tradition. I'm going to read a little thing like last time, and then we'll talk more about it as we go along. The first one is relative perfection. So I wrote down, so this this concept of perfection is different, actually. Here's a metaphor. So it's it's back to this question we've been discussing of the idea of being or becoming and this isn't a static idea of perfection where it, there's an upper limit. This is a, a moving perfection. And here's why I wrote down. It says, he's absolute in some respects, but some things don't have an upper limit, such as beauty or happiness or size. If you could tell us anything more about relative perfection that's relevant. Yeah, it's a, it's a self-surpassing perfection. At any given moment, God is the greatest that there is. But in the next moment, God will surpass his prior perfection. And so it entails, process thought entails a notion of eternal progression, if you will. 
that God is always becoming better. He's always creating a richer, more complete synthesis of experience that is aesthetically beautiful to him. Another thing to note is that process theists often speak in terms of aesthetic terms like beauty and the synthesis of matter so that it has this kind of quality of beauty and harmony and pleasingness rather than in terms of moral categories. It may be a defect in process thought if one believes that morality is more basic than, than aesthetic qualities like beauty. But they tend to think in those kinds of terms. So what God is doing in, in creating in himself every moment a new synthesis of his experience, which includes, by the way, all of our experiences. Every experience that we have, every, every thought we have, every memory is included within God's experience. And he takes and synthesizes it all into the reality of his moment of existence and then creates of himself a new being in the next moment, having enjoyed and appreciated our experience as part of his own. And so there's a richness to process thought that doesn't exist, if you will, in classical thought. Classical thought is always more in terms of other types of values, not the ascetic values that seem to have primacy in process thought. And some, like I said, just some attributes you talked about in classical theism, they talk about having perfect this attribute or perfect this attribute. But you point out in this chapter that some things just don't have an upper limit. Like, what is perfect beauty? There's no upper limit to beauty. It can Something can always be more beautiful or, or happiness. You can never have maximum amount. You're not perfectly happy. Or the really good analogy you have is like, it was, I can't remember what object it was, but it's say, what's the biggest basketball that you can conceive or something there's it's infinitely going up like there's always you can always conceive of something bigger and so these attributes of god are kind of the same like there's not an upper limit it can go on eternally yeah there's no greatest possible integer and so if you ask what's the perfect integer the question is just meaningless if you're talking about well certainly the greatest integer the one that is the high is the greatest number is the greatest integer in which case you'd have to say there's no such thing all right, so the second one is perfect relatedness, and I wrote down, the God of process theology is internally related to every reality. Hartzorn argues that God must be related to other realities in virtue of his knowledge or experience of them, and God cannot be absolutely unrelated. The absolute is necessarily the most related of all beings, and thus is the most affected of all beings. I wrote down, in Thomism or absolutism, there's a saying that God is the unmoved mover. In here, we would say God is the most moved mover. This is one of the biggest strengths of process thought, because if you read the Bible, God isn't not related to everything. He seems to be affected by things. He actually, you know, and, and this is even deeper because, like you said, rather than God being indifferent to, ev to everything, actually, he almost literally experiences everything that we would experience. Yeah, not almost, he does. Well, exactly. But he experiences it from a fullness of existence and experience that we don't possess. So, um, to give an analogy, I'm in the bank, a guy rushes into the bank with a gun and points it at me. I'm immediately in fear for my life. God experiences that I, I have fear for my life. But certainly, God does not have fear for his life, just because the guy is pointing a gun at me. So, there's a quality and tenor to God's experience that... Is, is different than my immediate experience of fear. But God includes within himself the knowledge of what it is that I'm experiencing. But certainly, it's at best a second-hand kind of experiential knowledge. Next attribute is potentiality. And you'll note this is in direct opposition of actuality. So, God can change in his knowledge and relationships to other beings and realities, is what I wrote down. So, Yeah, it's pretty self-explanatory in, in the sense that God is always potentially greater than he is at, at the present moment. Um, he has potential to realize all the potential in the universe. In other words, he includes within himself, um, in a sense, all the potentialities. And so God is, is ultimate potential, if you will. There is never a, a notion that God is finished. Uh, and there's an actuality, but in the moment the actuality is realized, it passes in a moment of creativity and synthesis of all experiences into something new. So God is ultimately in creativity. He's ultimately potential. Right, and this uh, next one is proportional dependence. And this is 
in opposition to the idea of God being completely independent of everything. Um, and you, you have, well, it's a, a metaphor that Charles Hartshorn shares, and I'm going to read it real quick. It says, so this is talking about God as a parent, and we're thinking about him as though, we're saying, is it better if he would be an independent parent? But he says, the father that as little as possible depends upon the will and welfare of his child is an inhuman monster. Let the child, say a daughter, be happy. Let her be miserable. Let her develop in a moral or vicious direction. It is all one to the independent parent. And then a uh, further part of the quote says, We do not admire a man less because we know he would be happier, or he would be a happier man if his son, who is now wretched, became well and happy, or because we anticipate that when a child is born to him, it will enrich his life with many new joys. We admire not the amount, but the appropriateness of the joy. We 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 rejoice in another's happiness, we grieve in his misfortune, but we do not praise or blame or admire on this account. And for this I just wrote, God depends on the world in some respects for what he is. Yeah, I mean, um, obviously God's the fullness of God's concrescence is, is not fully dependent on any given reality. It's his creativity. Concrescence is a moment of synthesis into a new reality. And And here's another thing that ought to be observed Whitehead because he was dealing really with concepts that were totally new. They hadn't really been used before. He's coming up with something that's totally new. He uses new terms that have never been used before, terms like concrescence. <laughs> he even talks about uh, an individual occasion feeling, but he really doesn't mean feeling. Um, and so he calls apperception. Um, to apperceive something is to have a feeling of it by analogy, but obviously it's not like having a human feeling. So Whitehead comes up with this new vocabulary in order to express his philosophy, which makes it kind of opaque to people who are trying to get into it for the first time. Can you define what prehending means? Yeah, to, to prehend is another way of feeling, but it includes a mental pole. So you have a physical pole and a mental pole, and in prehending, God takes into himself the um, feeling, if you will, of the influence from all of the occasions, all of the, all other bits of reality, and in prehending them, it is uh, before bringing them in and creating new synthesis. So he must take and somehow, it's like having a sense. The light acts upon the cornea of my eye so that I can see. The photons hitting my retina are kind of like the prehending. I haven't yet seen because I have that has to be processed in the visual cortex of my brain before it turns into seeing. But I'm prehending in the sense that I'm taking the data and putting it together so that it can be then brought to consciousness and realized. So I would probably relate back to the perfect relatedness attribute more. Exactly. The, to to prehend is to take into one's own being the influences of everything else, and, or to choose to take inf, you know into one's being more influence from any particular source than others and to exclude the influence of other things. So God would also have that option. When we say he's the most related, he has access to everything in the universe. It doesn't mean that he just embodies everything without making choices and, and excluding some. All right, the next two kind of go together. So maybe I'll take them both at the same time, but they are complexity and temporality. So complexity you kind of define it using temporality, but if, if you recall in the Thomas system, God is literally outside of time. He's not part of the flow of time. The absolutist tradition seems to take more to the B theory of time. There's two theories of time, an A theory and a B theory. The A is also called presentism, which means literally the present moment is the only one that actually exists. And the past did exist, and it still informs the present, but it no longer exists, and the future doesn't yet exist at all. Whereas the B theory of time, also known as eternalism, I guess you'd say, is this idea that all moments of time exist simultaneously, including the future. And so it's kind of like what we described before, like that parade, where basically God is observing the beginning and the end all at once, not in a temporal succession. I just thought it was important to define those two theories of time. And process theism would definitely go with the A theory or presentism, as you can tell. If, it, if each thing is a, an actual energy event or a moment or what are called actual occasion, then that is the one moment that actually exists from moment to moment. And so that's why it is presentism. I don't understand complexity, I guess. So tell me more about complexity. 
Well, not only is God temporally complex, that is, there's more than one moment to God's existence. Even though what exists right now is all that there is, and I'm not going to get into the um, problems of the theory of relativity that would say that there is no now for all observers, because that, that would take us far afield. God is also complex in the sense that every material reality is kind of God's body, um, by analogy. Because God perceives everything, he receives information from everything in the universe. It's like the cells of our body that we receive information from. So if, if I'm stuck with a pin in a certain part of my body, I experience that. But I'm not experiencing, what I'm really experiencing is the damage being done to my cells in a certain part of body who then send information to my brain, right? So I'm complex because I'm made of many parts. There is a real sense in process thought in which God is the most complex being because he includes within himself every material part of reality, every bit of it. And so just to compare this in the absolutist system is as opposed to simplicity, divine simplicity. This is divine complexity, meaning there are different parts that make up this one being. I don't know if it's necessarily, yeah, it's not like parts like you think of our parts, but. The difference is that God can't really fall apart. Our bodies can decompose. God can't decompose because whatever there is, God is going to be informed by because it will influence him. So even if all there were left would were, you know, whatever energy is left in the big whimper, God would still experience that. God is not really subject to being decomposed in the same sense that a body decomposes. Though logically, anything that's made of parts is logically subject to decomposition. And that's why the absolutists don't like it. Yeah, exactly. God could fall apart from the inside, and that would be a bad thing. <laughs> All right, and then I already talked about this some, but just temporality, it, in process thought, God is in time as opposed to outside of time. And this is kind of a, a big one, too, because if you're outside of time, then there's not really a way you can relate to someone at a certain time. And so this makes more sense in the God that's at least presented in the scriptures. Well, let's let's put it this way. It, it's certainly easier for us to understand because it's more like our experience, right? I'm not saying that the notion of, of a timelessness in itself is incoherent, though I believe the notion of a being that creates and interacts causally with the universe and is outside of time is incoherent, logically incoherent. This one is just simpler to grasp for us, I think. So I guess you're saying it might not be exactly that simple, but it's at least closer than for God being outside of Yeah, and let me, let me raise a complexity. Most people are familiar with Einstein's theories of special and general relativity. In those theories, there is no constant now, like the A theory says, for all inertial frames of reference. In other words, what one's now is, is relative to the inertial frame of reference that one exists in, how fast one is moving in relationship to whatever frame of reference you're comparing yourself to. Given that, my now may be different than yours. So if we have different nows, what is God's now? And defining that becomes very complex. I have a later chapter on omnitemporality where I attempt to do that, it's a very complex problem and, and gets into the philosophy of space and time very deeply. And is, it's, you know, it's not as easy on its face as it may seem. All right, the next few we'll go through pretty quickly, I guess. Um, mutability and immutability. So this one's unique in that there are still some aspects of God that are unchanging, but they're different than you'd think about in the absolutist tradition. I put God in process theology is thus immutable in his character, and commitment to righteousness, but he is changeable in his emotive states, such as pleasure or displeasure, independence on the states and of sin or righteousness of the world. So in this idea that he's immutable, because there are scriptures that say God does not change, and you're saying here that process theology would think of that more as saying his character or his devotion to the promise will never change, but... Right. Obviously, God, if he's experiencing things, is, is changing. So what we want to say is God can be relied upon to always seek our greatest good. We, and he will always be doing the best he can to bring that about in process thought. He's doing everything he can to bring about the greatest good in process thought. And his commitment is always to that. But everything is always changing in God. <laughs> so, and, and I think what the scriptures that are saying that God is unchanging are referring to his commitment to the covenant his constancy to righteousness and justice that he can always be counted on 
to be constant in terms of his covenant faithfulness. I think that's what the scriptures are saying. So, in my view, it means more what process thought is saying than what the absolutist tradition is saying in terms of metaphysical immutability. The next one is passability, as opposed to impassibility. And I just put from your book, it says, Because the God of process theology includes within himself the states and feelings of all actual occasions in every new moment of reality, God is maximally affected by all other things. So rather than being ineffected, he's basically the most affected thing out of everything because he's experiencing everything. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. It is the polar opposite, literally, logically. God is literally the most passable being in process thought. Nothing is more influenced by other things than God is. I'm not saying that that means that God is subject to or at the whim of or at the mercy of other things. That's a different concept. And in the classical tradition, they often confuse, in my opinion, being at the mercy of other things compared to being open to being influenced by other things. Certainly, a God who is happy when we're happy, who takes a measure of sadness in our sadness, even though it's from the perfect maturity and fullness of his divine experience, certainly when we are in grief, he takes that grief into himself in an appropriate recognition. When we do evil, God is displeased and, and it makes him sad. And so this is this is a God who genuinely has emotions. The, the one emotion that the Bible says that God has that everyone's kind of uncomfortable with is that God is kind of angry at times and is going to take vengeance. And, and I don't know the process thought views God as angry or taking vengeance the way the Old Testament says. So I don't want to say it's isomorphic with the Old Testament, but it, but it at least makes more sense to me than the, than the classical tradition. True. And just side note, at least my interpretation is a lot of things in the scriptures are obviously going through a human trying to make sense of something that's not necessarily exactly human, and so they're putting words there that are the best they can do to describe it. Yeah, of course. Next one we, we talked about a little bit. Let's expand more on it. God is a creator by organizing. And again, this would resound more with a lot with Mormons, I think. But let's talk about what this is. I'd say in process thought, since God is using persuasion to make things happen, it would make sense of evolution, because in evolution, it takes billions of years to get to humans, and let's say that's one thing that God wanted to have happen. So if God created humans, it took literally billions of years of luring existence in that direction and, and creating the world. Yeah, Whitehead was obviously uh, fully aware of Darwin's theory of evolution. But the driving force of the notion that things take a long time to realize God's will wasn't really driven by the theory of evolution, though he does take into consideration uh, biology and what we, we know from biology. So he usually uses biological analogies rather than analogies drawn from physics. But the reality is that God can't, because he can't just unilaterally do things in a moment, he must work with things over time. And so evolution is precisely what we would expect if God were creating in the way that process theism would suggest. It would predict that it would take millions of years to come up with complex life. So, yeah, it makes a good deal of sense of the paleontological, geological, and biological facts that we know about the world. And also the idea, and again this relates to Mormons, is that God didn't create ex nihilo again, that he begins with pre-existing things that already exist at actual occasions. He didn't create them, and so he's working with them, and that's why he's working persuasively again. And I guess rather than saying he created something out of nothing, you would say God exercises a co-creative power. He's not the only creator. I don't know, that's kind of a powerful idea to me. Yeah, all of our experience is co-creative. We're also co-creators, by the way, to a much lesser extent than God is, but we're, we're certainly co-creators of our own experience. God's initial aim, his influence, is a part of our experience, and we choose how much of that to accept and how much to reject, and because we have a higher ability to be conscious of and choose, we can literally make a free choice about how much of God's will, how much of God's influence we want to embody into ourselves to the extent we're aware of God's influence, of course. And so we have a greater ability to do that than, say, a jellyfish or an ant. Things can happen much faster with us. If God can get through, if we can hear, for instance, a voice from God saying, that person over there needs help, because we have bodies, we can literally go and bring things about in an instant. And here's, the, and here's kind of the paradox. 
we can bring things about faster than God can <laughs> in the physical world because we can act coercively. So if, if I um, have a, a, a moment of inspiration, I see a little kid's about to run out into the street, I can literally go over and pick the kid up or physically stop him from running into the street to get hit by the car. God can't do that. And so I have a power that God doesn't have. In a sense, I have a greater power than God does in this moment to act faster and to act more decisively than God does to stop evil. So there's this interesting paradox in, in process theism where God literally needs us in order to carry out some of his will if we're open to what it is. God needs us to realize his plans and purposes. And we can hasten things along in a way that not even he can. So given process theism, there are all of these interesting implications about the relation between human power, as finite as it is, and divine power, even though it's massive and widely influential, it's still of necessity only persuasive. Hmm. Though it's true that God's power is limited in that way, at least upon the world that we see, I don't want to downplay God's role as a creator. Um, I just want to read this from the book. It says, Though not all the order in the cosmos is due to God, without God there would not be any order. God is responsible for having elicited the qualities of higher life forms out of the basic constituents of reality. God is responsible for having elicited living things to evolve from more simple to more complex. So this idea that, oh, God's not coercive or he didn't bring things out of nothing seems weaker or something like that, but actually it's a different idea of power but the same idea exists. It's not that God... It's not that God escapes accountability. It's not that there's no problem of evil in process thought. There's still a problem of evil. One would have to justify the fact that God has elicited, has lured into existence, has persuaded the kind of world to come about that has come about. And, and in process thought, we would have to say that God literally took one hell of a risk, with emphasis on hell being the kind of condition that we don't want. because. He couldn't guarantee his will. And so he took a very great risk that in enlisting people and life forms of the type that we are, we can bring about great evil. And God has taken the risk in luring this kind of complexity out of chaos into existence that we can bring about enormous amounts of evil because of the kind of coercive power that we can exercise. And he can't control it. So he brings into existence these kinds of beings like us and now he's lost control. He can't control us, literally. And so he's taken a very large risk. And so the problem of evil exists for process thought, but in a different form. I bet you hadn't thought about that, had you? <laughs> well, it, it's an amazing thing because God took such a risk. The question is, is he justified in taking a risk and bringing the, the, these kinds of life forms about that he can't control? And I think a lot of people would say that was really irresponsible of God. I wouldn't say that, but some people might. In a book called Process Theology, an Introductory Exposition by two big process people, John Cobb and David Ray Griffin, this, this is a quote. It says, God did not bring about creatures such as us simply because freedom is in itself a great value, but because beings capable of the values we enjoy must necessarily have these other capacities. The question as to why God did not make sinless robots does not arise. God is partly responsible for what we normally call evil. Had God not led the realm of finitude out of chaos into a cosmos that includes life, nothing worthy of the term suffering would occur. God is responsible for these evils in the sense of having encouraged the world in the direction that made these evils possible. Hence, the question reduces to the question as to whether the positive values enjoyed by the higher forms of actuality are worth the risk of the negative values or the sufferings. And so I thought, and at least the way I understood it, they're saying basically God is possibly causally responsible for the possibility of intense evil, but not morally culpable for the actuality of evil. Yeah, but if he didn't foresee that bringing about... Uh you know, beings like us could be completely out of control and bring about great evil. He'd have to be pretty stupid. Well, that that's what it's saying. So, so he's saying the to him, the risk was worth it because of the great goodness that it would bring about was worth any of the suffering. I don't know, and that's but that's a value judgment, and one could have a, a different value judgment than that. Very true. And that's actually I discussed this on this forum quite a bit, and some people had that same argument about it. All right, back on track here. So. The next one is probably the biggest one, is 
maximal persuasive power. As we discussed, process theology maintains that God's power is necessarily shared. God possesses all the power that any one entity can possess, but even this power is only one power among others. So is there any more expounding on the persuasive power that you'd like to talk about? The question is whether a being with only persuasive power of this nature has power sufficient to really be the kind of being that it, that is a somebody that we would worship and be somebody we would pray to to make a difference so the question then arises does petitionary prayer make any sense would i ask god to bring things about and the answer is i wouldn't ask him to bring about in the sense that i think he can unilaterally bring things about mm-hmm. but there's another possibility the more influence i bring to bear on god the more likely it is that reality and god will both be influenced by the influences that i'm sending out So it would make sense for me to band together in a unified prayer with a very unified feeling and unified purpose and bring other people in that prayer with me to pray to God so that I can have a greater influence on reality and on God to achieve my purposes. So the more people I get to join with me in prayer, the the more influence that we exercise. And so group prayer begins to make a good deal of sense, and and specifically prayer where we're of one heart and one mind joined together, reaching to God, makes the most sense. Interesting way to play that out when, or that's how it plays out in process thought. So, In other words, the prayer circle in the temple would make a good deal of sense in process thought. The next is the last official one you have in your book, and then we'll talk about some other ones that you list in another way. This one's maximal knowledge. I wrote down here, God knows all that can be known, and like I was talking about with the presentism, but the future does not yet exist, and so it cannot be known. In process thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, but God seems, his maximal knowledge, meaning you can, he has all the knowledge that any one being can possess, but he also has something that philosophers call middle knowledge. and No, not in process that he doesn't have middle knowledge. He doesn't? Okay. No. I, I thought he no. basically knew everything. Because he experiences everything, he obviously would understand many of the possibilities and therefore know what's possible, but he wouldn't know what would become actual still, obviously, because right. he doesn't know. Yeah, what he knows is what might occur and what probably would occur, not what definitely would have occurred given certain conditions. Because there is a no definitely what would have occurred. (laughs) What's middle knowledge then? Because I thought that's what middle knowledge was. Middle knowledge is that God knows propositions of the form, if Adam were created in the Garden of Sage, then he would not have taken of the fruit. And that has a truth value. Okay, Um, It's not a might proposition where he might have taken it or he might not, or there's a certain probability that he would have taken it, you know, eaten the fruit or he might not. It's true or false. The law of the excluded middle applies to all propositions of that form, and therefore God knows with certainty what would have happened given any set of circumstances, and therefore he knows given any set of circumstances he can create precisely how the world will in fact be. That's not the case in process thought. Gotcha. The world in the future is still simply a matter of possibilities and, and probabilities given present tendencies. And there is no definite truth. The law of the excluded middle, the law of bivalence, doesn't apply to propositions about the future in process thought. All right, so basically God knows all the possibilities, but not which one will actually happen. But wouldn't you say if God has maximal knowledge and experiences all other experiences, wouldn't he, like, because like, even humans, given certain sets of data, can relatively accurately predict certain things, such as, the weather or how stock markets are, obviously it leaves room for anomalies, meaning it can maybe be, you can be surprised and that might not happen. But wouldn't you say he almost has or knowledge of the future, just not exact knowledge? Um, in fact, both, both the weather and stock markets are examples of chaotic systems that are inherently unpredictable. But there's some uh, things you can predict about them. No, not really. They're unpredictable by their very nature. I mean, weather by its very nature is, in, is impossible to fully predict because we don't have enough information about the initial constants. And given the infinity of information involved, 
that would be necessary. And in process thought, given the creativity inherent in reality, there would be no way to be able to make those predictions. I'm just saying, I look at my phone, it says it's going to snow tomorrow, and then it snows. I'm like, oh, isn't science cool? Yeah, yeah. But five-day-out forecasts are, are, no, are, are random. That's true. I mean, if there's a, a wind of 50 miles per hour and it's three miles away from your house and there's a big front coming through, pretty high probability you're going to have a front coming through at 50 miles an hour. Five days away making a forecast is just the same as being a soothsayer and guessing um, because of chaos theory. And so in that, that would apply in you know, large numbers to um, process thought because of the inherent nature of the creativity of the realities in, in the universe involved. By its very nature, the universe is not predictable. In fact, one of the great challenges of process thought is how it elucidates even a theory of natural law. Given how creative everything is and how unstable reality is, how do we get stabilities like something freezing every single time at 32 degrees and, and, and water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit? How do those regularities occur given the nature of creativity? And one of the challenges of process philosophy is precisely to elucidate a system where natural laws can be explained. So there are challenges to this kind of a metaphysic, and I myself have not seen an adequate explanation of natural law within the confines of process thought. Um, that's something that remains to be done in the future by somebody far brighter than I am. All right, and the next few we'll just breeze through, but they weren't directly mentioned, but they were, they're indirectly mentioned. One is that God has a physical pull. In Mormon thought, we think of God literally having a body, but when process theology talks about this, this is more like... Uh, it's that the, the world, the, the physical universe is God's body by analogy. And I guess your analogy earlier where you said, like, if you get poked by a needle, you experience that, but let's say, you know, the universe has an experience and then God experiences it metaphorically or by analogy. Well, literally, the, the, the experience is included within God's experience, literally. And so God... He apperceives, if you will, and prehends all experiences in the universe in Whitehead's terms. And the reality is, is God includes within himself all experiences. So how is this different than, well, you're probably going to have to explain these two terms. So I understand that process thought falls under the umbrella of panentheism, but what you just described sounds a whole lot like pantheism to me. How Can you explain those terms and then say how it's different? Yeah, in panentheism... God is included, not, he's not identical to the universes in pantheism. God is emergent from the universe. He's over and above the universe. God's mind and personality, if you will, transcend the physical universe. God is not fully defined merely by, by the matter and how it acts. In pantheism, God simply is the universe and somehow has mind or whatever purpose, but you know, once it gets going, he's bound by the natural law to do whatever he does. Uh, and there are different versions of pantheism. That's kind of Spinozan, Spinozian pantheism. But in panentheism, God is over and above. He transcends in a sense. So um, they're different thoughts. All right. And then the next is omnipresent. So I think this is actually fairly similar to the absolutist idea, or at least the basic way we think of it. Is God is literally present in all things at all times, as what as we defined called initial aim, meaning the, I don't know, I, I think it relates to imminence. Yeah, I mean, God God is present in all physical things as his purposes, when, you know, in process that you call it the initial aim, but it's, it's his influence that gets embodied to a greater or lesser extent in all realities. And so God is present in those realities. And God is able to influence everything in the universe all at once. And God is present in the sense that he also experiences everything in the universe all at once. In classical thought, God is present because he is pure act at every place in the universe without being located there. The last thing before we sum up is contingency and necessity. And I just wrote, God's existence is necessary, meaning God can't not exist. But some of God's properties are contingent, such as God's knowledge of contingent realities and the quality of his happiness and stuff like that. We kind of already talked about that, but is there anything you want to say? God knows the way we do. I mean, for instance, we, we know what is out there to see because photons act, 
act on our eyes, and, and then we turn the experience of ourselves into a conscious recognition. God also knows because he is acted upon by all things. It's like he has senses, and he knows through his senses. And so God knows only what there is to sense. Then the future isn't there to sense yet, so he doesn't know it yet. He, you know, Obviously, he can deduce certain probabilities and knows all possibilities, but it just it can't be sensed by him because it's not there yet. And so God knows kind of in the same way we do. The classical tradition, God knows, at least in the Thomistic tradition, and we really didn't get to this last time, God knows things because he causes them to be the way that they are. And so if I'm going to cause something to be the way that it is, I know what, how it is because I've caused it to be that way. In process thought, I know it to be that way because I have sensed it to be that way, even though I didn't create it to be what it is. It exists independently of me. And Thomas have a real challenge, and, and they have a lot of different ways of approaching this, but they have a real challenge explaining how anything could be contingent or free in any sense if God knows what things are because he causes them to be what they are. It's a real challenge for Thomistic thought. That challenge doesn't exist for process thought. Just in conclusion here, just to remind people why we've actually been talking about this at all. So in the book, you're developing a systematic idea of what God is. And since LDS thought doesn't actually have a systematic theology, we're using these two completely opposite systematic theologies just to try to locate where where we are by comparing, like, you know, obviously we're probably somewhere in the middle, maybe closer to process theism than the classical theism, but without defining or at least acknowledging the work that's been done by other people, it's kind of hard to locate where we relate to other people and have a dialogue about this. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, and that's why I, I uh, put it into relation to the other systems that are out there. And it's not to say that Mormonism doesn't have a base theology. It is to say that there isn't a single system that has been developed in Mormonism that is persuasive. And maybe that's because we haven't had our first Aquinas or our first Augustine yet. But it, it may be that in its very nature, where you have this kind of ongoing revelation, any kind of systematic theology would be foolish or impossible. On the other hand, anything relevant to a theology hasn't really been in a revealed revelation in Scripture for a very long time in Mormonism. So whatever your thoughts are on that. <laughs> All right, just to kind of give the trajectory where we're going, the next chapter highlights several different thinkers within Mormon thought, a few of them prophets, a few of them not, and we're going to talk just kind of about some different attempts at this very systematic theology we've talked about that Mormons don't necessarily have, but what the closest we do have so far has come from these people, and look forward to talking to you then about this. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.